From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger in for Terry Gross. Today, we'll talk with actress Kate Blanchett and filmmaker Todd Field about their movie Tar. Blanchett stars as a conductor who's risen to the top of the male-dominated world of orchestra conductors. She's brilliant and charismatic, but slowly we see accusations that may lead her to be canceled. The film raises many questions about who gets canceled, how actions can be misinterpreted and misrepresented, who is believed, and what the consequences are. Also, we'll hear from Ki Hui Kwan. As a kid, he starred in the 80s films Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Goonies. Now, after not acting for two decades, he's returned to the screen as the metaverse traveling husband in the movie Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And book critic Maureen Corrigan reviews I Have Some Questions for You, the new book by novelist Rebecca Mackay. That's all coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger in for Terry Gross. Terry has today's first interview. Here she is. The movie Tar is nominated for six Oscars, including Best Actress for my guest Kate Blanchett and Best Director and Best Screenwriter for my guest Todd Field. Tar is also nominated for Best Picture. But wait, there's more. For her performance in the film, Blanchett has already won a Golden Globe and a BAFTA, the British equivalent of an Oscar. Tar is the fourth film in movie history to win Best Picture from the major film critics associations in New York, L.A., and London, as well as the National Society of Film Critics. Blanchett is the only actress to have won all of those awards, and she did it twice. She's already won two Oscars for her performances in Blue Jasmine and The Aviator, in which she played Katherine Hepburn. She was nominated for her performance in Carol. This is Todd Field's first film in 16 years, after Little Children and In the Bedroom, which were both nominated for an Oscar. He's been at work, but those screenplays never got made. In Tar, Blanchette plays Lydia Tar, a superstar of the classical music world. She's an American conductor who has led several top American orchestras and for the past seven years has been based in Berlin, conducting one of the greatest orchestras in the world. Her career has reached a new peak. She's about to record Mahler's Fifth Symphony after having recorded all his others, and her memoir is about to be published. It's rare for an out lesbian to have this stature in the classical music world, but questions have been raised about whether she uses her power to take sexual advantage of young women she is mentoring. The movie asks a lot of questions about power and its abuse, cancel culture, how actions can be misinterpreted or misrepresented, and whether bad behavior should cancel the art as well as the artist. Our film critic Justin Chang says, but Tar is too subtly thoughtful and complex to be reduced to mere talking points, and Blanchett's performance also resists easy categorization. With her mix of charisma, ferocity, and occasional tenderness, she shows us both Lydia Tar the magnificent artist and Lydia Tar the monstrous human being, and makes it impossible for us to separate the two. Let's start with a scene from early in the film when Lydia Tar is teaching a class at Juilliard. A student named Max has been conducting an atonal piece that leaves Tar unimpressed. She thinks the music sounds like violins tuning up and that the student isn't bringing a point of view to the music. After she asks Max a question about Bach, he says he really isn't into Bach. Here's her response. Have you ever played or, or conducted Bach? Honestly, as a BIPOC, 
pangender person, I would say box misogynistic life makes it kind of impossible for me to take his music seriously. What what do you what do you mean by that? Well, didn't he sire like twenty kids? Yes, that's documented. Along with a considerable amount of music. But I'm sorry, I'm I'm unclear as to what his prodigious skills in the marital bed have to do with B minor. Sure. All right, whatever. That's that's your choice. I mean, after all, a soul selects her own society. But remember, the flip side of that selection closes the valves of one's attention. Now, of course, siloing what is acceptable or not acceptable is a basic construct of many, if not most, symphony orchestras today who see it as their imperial right to curate for the Cretans. So slippery as it is, there is some merit in examining Max's allergy. Can classical music written by a bunch of straight Austro-German church-going white guys exalt us individually as, as, as well as collectively? And who, may I ask, gets to decide that? You know, what about Beethoven? You into him? Because for me, as a U-Haul lesbian, I'm, I'm not too sure about old Ludwig. But then I face him, and I find myself nose to nose with his magnitude and inevitability. Kate Blanchett, Todd Field, welcome to Fresh Air. Congratulations on your awards and the nominations in the film. Thank you. Thank you. I think neither of you were deep into classical music before this film. And Todd, you're a jazz musician, trombone. That was like your first profession, I think. So why did you want to set this movie in the classical music world? And I realize you could have set it in the business world and, or the sports world because it's really about power. Um, but tell me more about why you wanted to make this movie set in the classical music world. Well, I really didn't. Um, I mean, I had this character. <laughs> okay. Well, I had this character, you know... Um, if you're lucky enough to be paid to write for a living, and I read a statistic in Variety, I don't know, 10 years ago, that said if you're being paid as a screenwriter, you have a better chance of starting in an MBA lineup. You know? <laughs> um, so I feel very lucky to, to have been able to keep my lights on for the last few years. And in this case, I was very, very lucky. The studio came to me and said, would you ever be interested in writing a film about a conductor in a, you know, uh, with classical music? I thought about it, and I had this character, Lydia Tarr, sitting, you know, in a notebook, and I thought, ah, okay. She was a top, you know, a media company or something. I think I had her, and this is a perfect power structure. If we really want to ask these questions about what is power, you know, what, how does power corrupt all of these things, um, it kind of fits into a frame quite neatly. So that was how she became a conductor, pure and simple. And in terms of my background in classical music is zilch, you know, other than a, um, a passing interests like most people in having certain favorites. And, you know, ironically, you know, the world had just locked down. It was the middle of March 2020, and orchestras couldn't play and conductors couldn't conduct. So we were all captive. And in this case, I was very lucky to be able to have the tutelage of John Mauchery, who had been Leonard Bernstein's assistant for 19 years, who taught at Yale, and also handily had been the conductor for the L.A. Phil for movie nights at, at the Hollywood Bowl. So he had a more than a passing acquaintance about movie making wasn't bothered like a lot of people in classical mu musical would be, you know, by, by some hedonist like me asking them a lot of funny questions. Um, and so I, I spoke to him for about three weeks 
um, he pointed me in the right directions. He gave me like a little mini master class, and then I wrote the script. But orchestral music and the way it's made is going inside those systems um, as they have traditionally existed. They're, they're environments of immense discipline and control and very hierarchical. And who has access to conduct that music is based on that, that character's legacy and their, their history and more than frequently <laughs> um, their gender. So it was the perfect place to, to place a character who is incredibly disciplined, who has devoted their life to, to their passions and probably has, as a result, has become quite inept at life. And also somebody who is obsessed and thinks that she can control how she's uh, perceived and how she moves through the world. I have another um, clip I want to play. Early in the interview, we heard a clip where Tar is telling her student who doesn't like Bach because as a BIPOC pan-gender person, he thinks that Bach is just too... Misogynist. Misogynistic, yes. Um, so at, at this point, she's sitting at the piano and playing Bach for him and kind of talking him through what's happening in this excerpt of The Well-Tempered Clavier. And I want to play this excerpt from the film. Come on, Max. Indulge me. Let's allow Bach a similar gaze. Sit. Now, this is all filigree, right? I mean, it could be a first-year piano student. Or Schroeder playing for Lucy. Glenn Gould, for that matter. <laughs> now, it's not until it changes. You get inside it that you hear what it really is. It's a question. And an answer. Which begs another question. There's a humility in Bach. He's not pretending he's certain about anything. Because he knows that it's always the question that involves the listener. It's never the answer, right? Now, the big question for you is, what do you think, Max? <sighs> you play really well. <laughs> okay. So that's a scene from Tar. So uh, let me start with you, Todd. Um, I know you said that you um, studied with John Malcheri while um, preparing this movie. He's the former conductor of the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra and has conducted a lot of film scores. And he gave you a lot of advice about classical music. Was it he who suggested that Bach is like, his music is like a series of questions? Well, I, I think, a, a, you know, it's a point-counterpoint piece. Um, we're making this thing to ask questions. We're making this thing to invite the viewer to answer them for themselves, however they answer them, you know. Um, uh, so we have to leave room for them. And thematically, we may as well lay that out right here musically, point-counterpoint, point-counterpoint, change, point-counterpoint, change, right? So... 
it was a very very simple idea of sort of exploiting the pattern of that music to have her try to make a point about Bach, who's being um, dismissed by the student, right? It's one of her many tactics until she uh, loses her tactics and ultimately loses the scene because she loses her temper with him. Kate, so you studied piano as an adult. I think it's really hard to learn an instrument as an adult. Now, you didn't have to be a concert pianist or anything, but you did, I think you that really is you at the piano playing in the film, right? That yes. Is, that is her playing, yes. Note for note. She's, and she's going to tell you the story, which is that she's still angry at me because I'm not showing her hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, honestly, when I saw the movie, I thought, oh, they're not showing her hands because she can't play and she's not really playing. So why didn't you show her hands? I didn't show her hands because when you go back and you look at, say, Leonard Bernstein and any number of, um, whether it's the unanswered questions or young people's concerts, the camera's trained at, at Leonard Bernstein, not at his hands, because none of us need to prove that he plays the piano. It's only in movies where you, you try to prove, like, the last brushstroke on a painting or showing an actor's hands, and it becomes a dog act, you know? Um, and I wanted to just make it a, a fact, you know? Um, I, didn't, I didn't want people watching her fingers. I wanted them watching her eyes. Kate, my question for you is, like, so you had to learn how to play, you know, reasonably credibly... But learn as an adult. What was the process like learning as an adult? It's, had you ever played piano before? Did, did you know how to read music? Uh, well, I'd learned as a girl. Um, and with every subsequent pregnancy, I said I was going to go back and pick up the piano again. But the sad indictment, <laughs> or the sad indictment on me is that I never really pick these things up until I'm forced to because of work. So it was a joy. It was an absolute joy to return to the piano. Kate, let me ask you, were there movies or theater productions that made you want to act? And not just kind of play act at home, but actually made you think, like, I want, I want to spend my life doing this. I remember I saw um, They Shoot Horses, Don't They, um, when I was quite young. And I was just, I just found it so utterly uh, absorbing. I've been quite obsessed by... Um, that sort of, uh, and then when I was at high school, turned it into a, a school play. I was so obsessed. Oh, really? With it. Oh, God. That's a depression era. I mean, it's set in, during the depression, and it's about like dance marathon, where like the winner, who's still standing after everybody has kind of dropped out of exhaustion, gets a cash prize, and everybody needed cash during the depression. Jane Fonda was one of the stars. Yes, amazing performance. Well, they're all <laughs> so amazing you did that in high school. Yeah. We, we we did it um, in the round, and we did it, um, yeah, I did it in my final year of school. I directed the production. I've just been obsessed with the story. I think it's so, I'd love to see a production now, so um, relevant and dynamic. But, yeah, and I, I, when I was young, um, I think I was seven, my parents took me to a production of The Mikado, and um, the, there's a very celebrated, very naughty actor called Frank Thring who was playing the emperor. And his moustache fell off and, I don't know, he gave some aside about it. You know, he turned it over, picked the moustache up and said, oh, made in Japan. And it it was just that (laughs) off-the-cuff remark Mm -hmm. that I thought, oh, suddenly the performance had stopped and I wanted to be on the stage because I felt they were all incredibly naughty and having an enormous amount of fun. Did growing up in Australia make movie-making seem very distant? Oh, God, not at all. 
Not at all. I mean, you, you think about the Australian film industry in the 70s and 80s, and my God, was it dynamic. Some of the world's great cinematographers come out of Australia over that period. No, I, it was really electric. Um, and we, at that time, were really engaged in consuming our own cinematic cultural product. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it was interesting when, say, a film like Mad Max came to the States, there was talk about whether it needed to be subtitled. I think, <laughs> oh, right, I think yeah. that has changed. <laughs> that has changed. Did, were you ever near one of the movie sets or any of them, any of those films like shot in your neighborhood? No. I think Neighbours, the, the, um, the television series was shot not far from where I lived. No, no, I was, I was very busy on my bike pretending I was Nancy Drew. So <laughs> I, I just <laughs> solving mysteries that I'd kind of half invented myself. Where did that mattress come from? <laughs> no, that's how I spent my childhood. But then I, I grew up with terrestrial channels. So I have incredibly eclectic taste as a result. I would come midway through movies. Um, and try and then reverse engineer how the, how the characters got there. And, um, yeah, so, but no, I never expected to be in the film industry, not because the Australian industry wasn't vital, just because I didn't think it was something that one could do with one's life. I want to thank you both so much and congratulate you again on all the awards and nominations. Um, so thank you so much for spending time with us on our show. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you, you, Terry. Thank you, Terry. Kate Blanchett is nominated for an Oscar for her starring role in Tar. Todd Field is nominated for Oscars for writing and directing the film. Tar is also nominated for Best Picture. After we take a short break, Maureen Corrigan will review the new novel by Rebecca Mackay. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Rebecca Mackay's novel, The Great Believers, about the AIDS epidemic of the 1980s, was a finalist for the 2019 Pulitzer Prize. Mackay's latest novel, I Have Some Questions for You, may seem markedly different, given that it's set in the closed community of a New England boarding school. But our book critic Maureen Corrigan says, here too, larger social problems emerge. Here's her review. Edgar Allan Poe, the creator of the modern mystery, was on to something when he declared that the death of a beautiful woman is the most poetical topic in the world. That weird and repugnant statement appeared over a century and a half ago in an essay called The Philosophy of Composition. But Poe could be talking about the popularity of true crime podcasts and documentaries in our own day. True crime's troubling obsession with the deaths of beautiful young women translates, if not always into poetry, more predictably into high ratings. Rebecca Mackay is well aware of the ick factor inherent in the subject of her new novel called I Have Some Questions for You. Her main character, a middle-aged film professor and podcaster named Bodie Kane, returns to the New Hampshire boarding school she attended as an alienated scholarship student to teach a mini-course on podcasting. Bodhi has made a name for herself with her podcast called Starlet Fever, which she describes as being about dead and disenfranchised women in early Hollywood, about a system that would toss women out like old movie sets. 
The subject of her podcast, along with her teaching stint at Granby, as the school is called, stir up Bodhi's memories of the death of her junior year roommate, a beautiful and popular girl named Thalia Keith, whose broken, bloodied body was found in the school pool. An athletic trainer named Omar Evans, one of the few people of color at the school back in the 1990s, was quickly arrested and convicted of the murder. But rumors linger, especially about a mysterious older man in Thalia's life. Semi-hip to her own self-interested motives, Bodhi proposes Thalia's murder as a possible research topic to her class of wannabe podcasters. One zealous female student, after voicing concerns about fetishizing violent death, takes on the assignment, just the way so many of us, after mulling over similar scruples, immerse ourselves into those true crime podcasts and documentaries, or into this vastly entertaining novel about a fictional murder case. I have some questions for you is both a thickly plotted, character-driven mystery and a stylishly self-aware novel of ideas. It's being rightfully compared to Donna Tartt's 1992 blockbuster debut, The Secret History, because of its New England campus setting and because of the haunting voiceover that frames both novels. Listen, for instance, to these fragments from Bodhi's incantatory introduction. You've heard of her, I say, a challenge, an assurance, to the woman on the neighboring hotel bar stool, to the dentist who runs out of questions about my kids and asks what I've been up to myself. Sometimes they know her right away. Sometimes they ask, wasn't that the one where the guy kept her in the basement? The one where she went to the frat party? The one where he'd been watching her jog every day? No, it was the one with the swimming pool. That one. Because what is she now but a story? A story to know or not know. A story with a limited set of details. A story to master by memorizing maps and timelines. Of course, in the decades since Tart's groundbreaking campus mystery appeared, the Internet has happened. Throughout, I have some questions for you. The Internet and its veritable flash mob of amateur online Columbos is a constantly intrusive character, posting videos and generating red herrings and other theories about Thalia's murder. Some of this material even changes the direction of the investigation launched by Bodhi and her students. That investigation is almost derailed when, at a crucial moment, Bodhi's estranged husband becomes the focus of a Me Too accusation that threatens her own reputation as an advocate for women. How do you tease out the facts, this novel insistently asks, from a subjective thicket of bias, wavering memories, groupthink, and gossip? 
And how much does the form your investigation takes, in this case a podcast, determine which details are spotlighted and which ones are ditched because they don't make a dramatic enough story? Don't worry. Mackay has not settled here for one of those open-ended ruminations on the impossibility of ever finding the truth. That kind of postmodern ending has worn out its welcome. But in a twist worthy of Poe, Mackay suggests that the truth alone may not set you free or lay spirits to rest. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed Rebecca Mackay's new novel, I Have Some Questions for You. The film Everything, Everywhere, All at Once received the most Oscar nominations this year, 11, including Best Picture and Best Supporting Actor for our guest, Ki Hui Kwan. It's his first big role in decades, and he's already won the Golden Globe, the Screen Actors Guild Award, and all the other major awards for the film. He spoke about the film and his career with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado. Ki Hui Kwan was 12 years old when he first appeared on screen in the 1984 blockbuster Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Wow! Holy smoke! Crash landing! Short round. Step on it. Okie dokie, Dr. Jones. Hold on to your potatoes. Private, how does a kid drive in the car? After holding his own co-starring with Harrison Ford, Ki Hui Kwan played Data, one of the kids searching for treasure in the 1985 film The Goonies. He starred in a few other films and TV shows, but when he was in his 20s, the job stopped coming. So he decided to leave acting, went to film school, and started working behind the scenes. He tried to convince himself that he didn't miss acting, but after decades being out of it, he decided to try it again. The first script he read after coming out of retirement was Everything Everywhere All at Once. The film is a family drama masquerading as a sci-fi martial arts movie. It's also an absurdist comedy. It's about Evelyn, a Chinese immigrant played by Michelle Yeoh, totally weighed down by her life and her regret. She's trying to keep her laundromat and her family afloat while being audited by the IRS. Ki Hui Kwan plays Wayman, Evelyn's husband, who's also trying to keep it together, but is considering serving Evelyn divorce papers. Things start getting strange when Wayman is taken over by another version of himself from an alternative parallel universe. He's here to warn Evelyn of a great evil and to tell her that she alone, this version of herself, is the only person who can save the entire metaverse. I know you have a lot of things on your mind. But nothing could possibly matter more than this conversation we're having right now concerning the fate of every single world of our infinite multiverse. My dear Evelyn, I know you. With every passing moment, you feel you might have missed your chance to make something of your life. I'm here to tell you, every rejection, every disappointment has led you here to this moment. Don't let anything distract you from it. <laughs> Kiwi Kwan, welcome to Fresh Air. Anne-Marie, hi, how are you? Thank you for having me. Let's start by talking about everything, everywhere, all at once. How did you get the role of Waymond? Uh, well, this was... Uh, uh 
was something that I, I, you know, I, I was so surprised by because it was literally two weeks after I contacted an agent friend of mine and practically begged him to be my agent because, you know, I haven't had an agent for more than two decades. And when he said yes, I was expecting to, you know, to not hear from him for another six months or a year. Uh, and when that phone rang two weeks, literally two weeks later, and he told me about this project, I was so surprised, but also so happy that that there was something like this out there. Uh, and then when I read the script for the first time, I was overwhelmed with emotions uh, because it was a script that I wanted to read for many, many years, and I could not believe that there was this possibility of me auditioning for a role. Uh, it's not a minor role. It's a major role, and it was a role that I, I thought it was written for me, um, and I was just so excited. Uh, let me take a step back. What made you want to get back into acting after being out of it for um, so many years? Uh, well, you know, for the longest time, uh, when I had to step away because of lack of opportunities, you know, I thought I buried that acting bug in deep and far uh, that I didn't think I would ever see it again. But uh, over the years, as I was working behind the camera, I noticed that there was a change in the landscape. Um, you know, the Asian actors were giving much more medial roles, you know. Uh, what I was used to seeing, you know, the stereotypical, the, the marginalized, the butt of the joke characters uh, no longer uh, what was being offered. When I saw a television show called Fresh Off the Boat that featured an entire Asian cast uh, on television and, and being really successful that lasted for six seasons, I mean, during that entire time, I, uh, unbeknownst to me, something was uh, missing and that acting bug slowly called itself back to the surface. And I would just hear this little voice in the back of my head saying, Key, you know, maybe it's time to consider doing this again. And I would entertain it for a little bit, and then I would brush it away really quickly, thinking, that's impossible. Uh, you know, I haven't done this for so long, and I didn't even know if Hollywood would want me again. Uh but every time I push that voice away, every time I ignore it, it would just come back stronger and louder until I couldn't ignore it any longer. We're listening to the interview Ki Hui Kwan recorded with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado. He's nominated for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his role in the film Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger, back with more of our interview with Ki Hui Kwan. He stars as the many versions of the character Waymond in the film Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. He first started acting as a kid in the 1984 film Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. When he was in his 20s, he stepped away from acting after not getting any jobs. He worked behind the camera on stunts for films like X-Men and as an assistant director for Wong Kar Wai. But after seeing more Asian-American actors getting roles in films and TV, he decided he wasn't done with acting and decided to try again. Within weeks, he was called to audition for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Now he's won many awards for Best Supporting Actor for his role and has been nominated for an Oscar. 
He spoke with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado. You were born in Saigon um, to a big Chinese family, and uh, your family decided to leave Vietnam, and you had to split up. Your mom took three kids, and you and the rest of your siblings traveled with your dad. Uh, Do you know why your parents decided to leave and split you up that way, that that was the best way to do it? Well, because that was our second attempt. Our first attempt, we all left together. And uh, and we got caught, and we were jailed, and then we were released, and my parents lost everything because it cost a lot to get all of us on a boat. And so then they, you know, they worked really hard, and they saved up enough money to make a second attempt. Uh, and when that opportunity came, they decided that it would be better if we were to, to split up. Uh, the chance of one of us making out is a lot higher. And then whoever would, would be able to you know, immigrate to the United States would help the rest of the family uh, to come over. Uh, that was the reason behind it. So my mom took three of my siblings. She went to Malaysia. Uh, and then my dad with my five other siblings, you know, we got on a boat with 3,000 other refugees. Uh, and we went to Hong Kong. And I remember when we were... At the shore of Hong Kong, the local government didn't know what to do with us because they've never seen so many refugees. And, they, you know, we were on a boat for almost a month before we were allowed uh, to come on land. And, uh, and you know, they put all of us in this makeshift uh, refugee camp. And I was there for an entire year, separated with my, with my younger brother, who is my best friend. And, uh, and that, was, that was a really tough time. The family was reunited in Los Angeles in 1979. Um, what was that like when you all got together and then you settled in L.A.? Well, for me, I was, I was so happy because, uh, you know, I reunited with my, with my younger brother. This is after a year of not, not being able to see him. Uh, reunited with my mom. Uh, we rented this house that's, that was three-bedroom. Uh, and so the 11 of us total cram into this little house in Chinatown, Los Angeles. I still, you know, sometimes I still drive by it uh, just, you know, just for nostalgia's sake. It's a different house. They tore down already and they built, they built a new house over it. Uh, but that, that was, you know, that was a really nice and, and memorable period of my time. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it doesn't take much to be, to be happy. And that was, a, that was a time where I was really happy. Now, your first acting role was in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Um, in 1983, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas were looking for a kid to star as um, the sidekick of Indiana Jones. And um, you got that role. Can you tell us that great story about getting that role? Yeah, well, you know, Spielberg and Lucas, they were looking for a Chinese kid to play short round. And they went everywhere. They went to New York, London, Singapore, Hong Kong, San Francisco even. Went everywhere, could not find it, almost gave up the role. When, thank God to the casting director, Mike Fenton, who suggested that we have, you know, that they would have an open call in Chinatown, Los Angeles. And, I mean, you know, this was like 1983, so there was a very small Asian community living in Chinatown at that time. And they went to my elementary school. 
and they pass out these flyers, you know, asking the teachers that, you know, if you have any students that fit this description, can you please send them in? We would love to interview them. And my brother's teacher thought he was, you know, he, he was perfect for the role. Uh, so he went to audition, and I tagged along. And as he was auditioning, I was behind the camera coaching him what to do. I, I had no idea why I was doing that because I didn't even know what was going on. But I was just, I was just telling him to do this, to do that. Uh, and the casting director saw me and asked if I wanted to give it a try, and I did. And the very next day, we got a call from Steven Spielberg's office. Uh, and my mom, you know, thought it was a really fancy meeting because, you know, she heard Hollywood, big director, big movie star. Uh, and she, you know, she had me uh, wear this, you know, really uncomfortable three-piece suit that, that she bought uh, in Chinatown, again, that I would wear during Chinese New Year. Um, and, yeah, and I, I looked really uncomfortable, Stephen took one look at me, gave me a hug, and asked me to come back the next day and wear something really comfortable. And I did. Walked into the room, and there was Harrison Ford, George Lucas, and Steven Spielberg. Uh, we spent an, after, you know, an afternoon together. And three weeks later, I was on a flight to Sri Lanka uh, and walked on set for the very first time. Uh, and that changed my life. Uh, there was also that movie, that made me fell in love with, with this industry, with acting. Um, and it changed my family's life. Because uh, then now I was able, you know, Spielberg and Lucas, honestly, they were so generous. I was able to make a lot of money at that time to help my parents pay off their debt. Uh, and then also to be able to buy a house for my family to live comfortably in. Now, you said you hadn't really seen many American films before you got cast in this movie. You didn't know who Steven Spielberg or Harrison Ford were. It's funny that it wasn't, you know, seeing films that necessarily made you want to be an actor. It was actually doing it and, you know, the acting and being on set. Um, and the movies that you made early in your career are these, like, adventure carnival ride type movies, you know. I'm not sure what it felt like filming, but like in these movies, there are water slides and roller coasters. It's just like this, you know, this like adventure. I don't know if that's what it felt like filming them. Oh, absolutely. It felt like you're going to a theme park every day, you know, with like Indiana Jones, the roller coaster, uh, Goonies, water slides, like these pirate ships. You know, we didn't have the luxury to be able to go to Disneyland when I was a kid. So that was Disneyland to me. And it was just, it was just so much fun. Your second film was the adventure kid movie, The Goonies, um, an important movie for some of us of a certain age um, who grew up in the 1980s. It's from 1985, and it's about a group of kids that are friends who have to move because a rich man in their town is buying all of the family homes to build a golf course. Um, The kids find a treasure map and go on an adventure to find pirate gold to try to save their families. They go through all these trials, and they actually find the treasure while also being hunted down by these evil crooks because, you know, of course, it's an adventure, so they have to be being hunted down. Um, I want to play a quick scene. Um, The kids have found the treasure and are filling their bags with gold and jewels um, when the bad guys find them. Um, We'll hear the main kid first, played by Sean Astin. 
I got an idea. What is it? What? I saw this on the Hardy Boys once. We can leave a trail of jewels into one cave. Uh-huh. And then we can hide out in another. Uh-huh. And when the Fratellis go into that cave, then we can make a run for it. Now that sounds like a great yeah. idea. Yo, outside. Okay, this is war. Dude, don't, no, don't take it up. No, no. I said outside. Come on. We will not be taken alive, Mikey. We, what do you mean we? That's a scene from the 1985 oh, that film is so Goonies. Good. I... That is so good. I haven't seen the movie for a while. The music, uh, uh, again, it brings back so many good memories. I, I can see the scene uh, as I'm hearing it. Uh, it's great. Wow. That's, you know, working with Sean Astin and, and uh, Josh Brolin. It was the first movie for a lot of them. Ah, so fun. Uh, you play the character Data, who was an inventor who made these contraptions that fought off bullies. I'm wondering if you ever had wanted to use those contraptions when you were a kid. Like, did you ever have to fight off bullies? <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's what's so great about that character is, is all these gadgets. I remember the very first time I heard the pitch from Steven Spielberg. And he says, Key, I got your next movie. Uh, you play this character named Data, and, uh, and he has all these gadgets. But none of them work unless if your life depends on it. Uh, and sure enough, you know, a few months later, I was on a set with all these kids. Uh, no, I didn't, I didn't have to think about using any of these gadgets in school. I wasn't bullied. I think it was because of, uh, you know, people recognized me. I, you know, I already did Indiana Jones. So, so all, you know, all my classmates know who I am. Uh, they, they, they were very nice to me. I read that after you made Everything Everywhere all at once, you couldn't find work again for a year. And, you know, we should remember that you finished filming that movie. Was it at the beginning of 2020 or the end of 2019? Yeah, beginning of 2020. Yeah. So, you know, then the pandemic started. Um, things were shutting down. But uh, you, you've said that you felt like you had that feeling that you had back when you weren't getting roles in your 20s um, and that you lost, you you were maybe going to lose your health care or you lost your health care and that you had that that familiar feeling again. That must have been so hard. You had just made this great, you know, had this great experience back on set and then um, you were waiting for the movie to come out. You know, we shot the movie in 2020. 37 days out of 38. So we were shut down with one more day to go. Mm. Uh, and then we didn't regroup until eight months later. And we finished the movie. And I was like everybody else, uh, staying at home, trying to be safe. And uh, things were very different this time around. Uh, for me as an actor, uh, there were a lot more opportunities. So my agents were sending me audition opportunities where I was recording myself at home and sending in self-tapes. And I was doing that a lot, but also not landing any job. I could not get one job. I kid you not. And uh, not even a callback, in fact. And I was, I was scared all of a sudden because I thought everything everywhere was a one-time thing. And it brought me back to those times when I was in my late teens and early 20s where I was auditioning and not landing anything. Uh, I lost my health insurance. And uh, I even joked with the Daniels, and I said, Daniels, uh, you know, one, no one wants to hire me except Spielberg, Lucas, Wong Kar Wai, and the Daniels. Uh, they had a good laugh. 
uh, and I, you know, I had a conversation with our producer, and I said, "You've seen the movie? Am I any good?" And he says, "Key, trust me, you're really good in this movie. You just wait." Ah. Uh, and sure enough, our movie came out in March of 2022, and my world changed. Uh, the first phone call I got was from a wonderful producer I met on the X-Men. He was an associate producer at that time, and he is Kevin Feige. Who is master of the Marvel Universe, we should say. Yes, you know, he runs Marvel. And he called me and he said, you know, I saw your movie. You're great in it. And I want you to come join the MCU family. And I was just so happy. And then when I got that phone call from Kevin, I got so emotional and then after that, I called the Daniels right away. He says, Daniels, I said, listen, you know, nobody wants to hire me except Spielberg, Lucas, Juan Kawai Daniels, and now Kevin Feige. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and they were really happy for me. Um, last month, you won the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor for your role in Everything Everywhere All at Once. And you gave this great speech. Um, I wanted to play a little bit of it back right now. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I was raised to never forget where I came from and to always remember who gave me my first opportunity. I am so happy to see Steven Spielberg here tonight. Steven, thank you. Uh, When I started my career as a child actor in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, I felt, I felt so very lucky to have been chosen. As I grew older, I started to wonder if that was it, if, if that was just luck. For so many years, I was afraid that I had nothing more to offer, uh, that no matter what I did, I would... I would never surpass what I achieved as a kid. Thankfully, more than 30 years later, two guys thought of me. They remembered that kid. And they gave me an opportunity to try again. That's an excerpt of uh, Key's Golden Globe speech. It's great that Steven Spielberg happens to have a film out this year, too, so he can be in the audience with you at all of these events. Oh, my gosh. That was, that was such a memorable night for me. Uh, you know, during this awards season, um, I, I wanted, you know, the, the one person that I really wanted to see was him, was Steven. And we kept missing each other. He would go to an event where I, I, I didn't go, and then I would go to other events where he didn't go. And it just so happened to be at the Golden Globes where we reunite in person. I haven't seen him like maybe in 12 or 13 years. Uh, we saw each other during the pandemic over Zoom. We had like a Goonies reunion, but not in person. And when I found out that he was going to be there, he was nominated. Of course, you know, having him won and I won, it was, it was so special. And to be able to, to look him in his eyes and to thank him 
for everything that he has done for me. You know, that, not only that first opportunity, but also, uh, you know, he changed my life. Uh, that was, that was really special. And, uh, after I won, I, I went back out and I gave him a big hug and I, and I said, Stephen, I hope I make you proud tonight. And, uh, and he says, Key, you made me proud when you were just 12 years old. Um, and it was just so good to give him that hug. Uh, and, and, uh, yeah, he, he means so much to me. I, I love him so much. Well, it's nice that you're both getting acclaim this year for the movies, the particular movies that you made, because I think they're both very moving personal movies. It's really special because like during this entire journey, for me, I've been very honest to the point where sometimes it scares me. So I, I've been very personal sharing my, my struggles, sharing my story. And, uh, and at the same year where he basically shared his childhood with the world. And how cool is that, huh? That, uh, that both of our movies are being recognized. Uh, wow. Ki Hui Kwan, thanks again for joining us. And congratulations on all of your success. Thank you so much. I had a wonderful time chatting with you. Ki Hui Kwan spoke with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado. He's nominated for the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for his work in the film Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. For Terry Gross, I'm Sam Brugger.